0: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Martin Poussin. I also have brand new black fingernail polish. Uh, uh, Hello, gorgeous. Strange birds, odd ducks, and queer fish. Uh, I don't like the sound of my own voice. It may take me a few moments to get used to this thing. Uh, Apologies. I, uh, uh, God, thank you for showing up uh, to a book launch in Los Angeles on a Thursday night. Uh, uh, and, uh, thank you to the dashing David Gonzalez, uh, and for Skylight Books being such fabulous host. Uh, I'm Southern, so I know what hospitality means. It means when you show up too crunked up from your coffee that you were greeted with not one but about four shots of whiskey so <laughs> thank you to all those <laughs> uh, thank you to uh rare bird lit uh tyson and julia and winona and alice for showing me that a uh, black sheep can grow wings and fly um uh and um speaking of black sheep, uh, I have to thank a couple of people, uh, um, Joe Marchi flew here from Denver, Colorado, he is my little brother, uh, wild boy, and I'm so excited he's here, (laughs) I was shocked, senseless when I saw him, uh, and, um, I can't even see Jason, where's Jason, uh, there he is. Oh my God! Look at that mustache. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jason Sellers, who read very early drafts of this book, and said, "Honey, you got to fill in the holes and you got to put in the ugly." So I worked on it. Uh, and uh, his alter ego, Jake Cheers, is in many of the stories, so I have to say thank you. And Stephen Kayak, the uh, midwife who read every single draft of every single story, uh, and uh, and also directed the most wicked wild book trailer uh, for Black Sheep Boy. So, uh, thank you. Um, and um uh I was asked to say a little bit about the book um I, because I figured I would be both a little high from the coffee and drunk from the whiskey i I had to write some things so I might look at a page uh, <laughs> um my apologies uh I think uh uh, why uh, did you write the book and what is the book about are just two of the most difficult questions. Uh, but I thought um, I'd say that at its best, I think fiction is an act of revolution. And I wanted to write a book that would provoke and perturb, perturb and, and would court controversy. Um, a book in honor of so many, including just yesterday, Alicia, uh trans activist Pakistani uh, who was shot taken to a hospital uh, but was uh, died from treatable wounds because they couldn't figure out how to admit her as a man or a woman people beyond the binary right so in in honor of her and so many and in tribute and in spirit of uh, other trans activists like MX Justin Vivian Bond. Um I think if we have to bleed anywhere, then I believe what uh Justin Vivian Bond says is Kiki, then we must feel free to pee everywhere. So I wanted to write the kind of book that would be a pee everywhere book, right? Um so it's a book about an outsider boy and an outsider culture. Um uh I believe that more than a license more than a permit separates what is illegal from what is irregular. And I wanted to write a book for the irregular, for the lawless, for the outsider. Um, and uh, it's it's just as queer in its place as it is queer sexually. It's a, a mixed-race queer boy growing up in a mixed-up and odd land where uh, bayous run under houses, trees grow out of water, uh, moss grows, even on things that are rolling. Uh, People venerate the Virgin Mary and practice voodoo, um, right? (laughs) And um, uh, these people who were subjected to the largest mass deportation, mass uh, exile, mass diaspora in the Western Hemisphere ever, the Cajuns, the Acadian people, settled in the bayous, and when they reached there, uh, they decided not to bother to write down that history for fear that it would become too fixed and too real. Um, So instead, they told lies, told jokes, wrote manic songs. They knew for hundreds of years, absolutely no codified language, no English. Uh, They knew no currency. They knew no racial hierarchies at all until the U.S. education system moved in when my grandparents and and more my parents were coming of age uh, and suddenly they created all manner of false hierarchies. There were Cajuns and Creoles and Sabines and Octoroons and Quadroons and what did it all mean? Uh, Nothing, really, because it was all a construct, which is another way of saying it's a myth, right? Also, they created all manner of uh, gender uh, divisions suddenly, right? Uh, Fairy, sissy, Jew. woman and puss and you can imagine with my name which one I was so um, (laughs) so I wanted to write a kind of book that rejects um, assimilation and rejects normativity as the compromises that they are. So that means that it also had to reject reality and realism. Uh, so there is legend and fantasy and fairy tale and myth um, all in there. Um, and I, I did not want to flinch at really difficult sex. So there's going to be some of that uh, as well. Uh, It's post-Stonewall, pre-AIDS, cusp of AIDS. There are 13 stories altogether. Uh, a mixed-race holy ghost mother, a uh, Cajun-French phantom father, a, a voodoo-practicing lugaru werewolf grandfather, gender outlaws, radicals, murderous bar owners, uh, perverted teachers, sex-starved priest, uh, And all altogether, there are 13 stories, though eventually they tell a, a novel. Uh, and... Um, and uh it did take me 13 years to write uh so apologies uh <laughs> <laughs> uh and uh uh, I just calculated the number of pages in the book, and I figured, wow, I'm prolific. It turns out it's about 13 pages a year. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and and then, I, uh, then Black Sheep Boy, the title, has 13 letters, and if you're going to prevent a lugaru, a werewolf, from entering a sacred space, you put 13 objects before the door, so we're all safe here tonight. Uh, uh, all right, so I was planning to read from my uh, book of poetry, uh, Straight Martin, Gay Martin, but I looked at the Skylight Calendar and I realized James Franco preceded me (laughs) and the first half of the book is just blank pages, so I figured, (laughs) fuck that. Um, uh, (laughs) uh, So, uh, I... I, um, I did thought I'd maybe warm up with a, a poem or two uh, and then dig into the book. Um, the first poem is, uh, is called War Story. Um, uh, when you discharge from the army, my touring war-torn hero... Maybe I'll greet you crowned in a wig of Spanish moss with open civil arms. Maybe I'll greet you in a robe of live oak bark, a magnolia brooch, and pine needle beard. Maybe I'll parade hands in utter joy, rain down confetti, raise up monuments to your Roman lust, your motto emblazoned, come, claim, crush. And what will be left of our state? Broken twigs? Turned up roots? Branches stripped of fruit and bloom? Even then, maybe I'll greet you Draped in a collar of figs Each shaped like a testicle Or a fat tear Maybe I'll greet you Shoed in cypress slippers Fingers ringed with dewy jewels Maybe Or... Maybe when your tongue charges to plunder my Acadian heart, to empty its chambers, this time I'll cough up scarlet wine. You'll choke on swallowed years and memory rhyme. We'll swap, spit, and defeat. Maybe I'll jack up Soldier down and knock back a rude magnum. Your military dress will fall. A hero's body, your best weapon. Until your chest flashes the decoration of a purple bruise. And my arms, no longer civil, closed for good. Battle over? Maybe. Yet the war, that old story, it never ends. And this one's uh, voodoo. Um, Let the blood run now down the timber of your leg. Let the fire rise up, burn the fur near the flame, the meat of the lung, the fat of the heart. Nothing remains once you swallow my charm. The ashen stains at the bottom of the cup point you toward the lie of the day after this. No release from the tight glove of unrelenting bliss. The fist choking your thigh the phantom grip of a beast, what will you tell them when they come with the priest? Deaf to the wooden homily, deaf to the silky hymn, deaf to every song but mine, dispossessed and dumb and blind, still your rose opens wide before the blessed wrong, the righteous curse and twisted luck of my untender tongue, my unsanctified touch. So uh, that was written uh, uh, in a kind of answer poem to Sonnet to the Asshole by uh, Arthur Rambeau and Paul Verlaine, his lover. Uh, (laughs) uh, I thought um, I'd read the title uh, story, Black Sheep Boy, but maybe read... Uh, The second half of a diptych story, there's a a, a two-part story called Father Fox, and I'll just read the second half of that to sort of set up a turning point in the book. And uh, the first part of the the story begins with the father um, admonishing the son not to tell anyone this story. But it's a wild, crazy Louisiana Cajun-style story about uh, the longest-serving governor uh, in Louisiana who uh, famously said the only way he could lose an election is if they caught him in bed with a live boy or a dead girl. Um, and, uh, and uh, there are other uh, jokes, jokes about uh, a lecherous priest who's selling uh, marijuana in the rectory uh, and whose hands find his way into the purses of old ladies and up the shorts of young boys uh, and his name is Father Fox uh, that priest um, so the story picks up uh, in the second part right there and before I begin I'm feeling a little Parched. <laughs> Forgive me. <Attica. laughs> it doesn't have the bitters in it though. That was so good. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All right. <laughs> So, uh, Father Fox, "'Don't tell anyone,' he said as he opened the door. "'Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned,' I said in a hush. "'My voice sounded sing-song, bird-like, even in my ear, "'as I hesitated at the threshold of the confessional. "'The priest was on the wrong side of the booth, "'the side where the penitent would enter. "'Where would I sit? Where would I kneel?' Don't tell anyone, the priest said again as he held out a hand to muzzle my mouth. His black cassock parted to expose a crooked pant leg. His fingers stretched in the air while that leg shifted. In the dark of the booth, the velvet curtain whispered and the wood bench whined. The gruff voice of the priest grunted in my ear and his eyes blazed before mine. A secret, he commanded, tapping his shoe on the floor. Then one more sound, a zipper. His hand pulled me to his waist. Fingers slipped into my mouth. The cassock tangled up in his pants and he crouched to step out of it like an animal shaking off an extra skin. His long nose sniffed at the air around me. What I had to confess. Impure thoughts. Lust for other boys. Nightly (laughs) self-abuse. I let a boy yank down my pants and rub me under the bleachers. It was true. I locked lips with a yearbook picture of the football star and prayed he laid me on the field. I lingered in the gym shower until my skin turned red and the boy at my back tugged off then turned away. And I laughed aloud at the word homo as if it was the punchline to a joke not aimed at me. In the confessional, though, there was no punchline no joke. There was only a half-naked priest with furry red patches and yellow eyes daring me to leave the booth, betting I'd stay. A secret, he repeated. His, sh- his eyes shone like mirrors, as if waiting for me to drop to my knees like a regular penitent. Did he count on me to play along because he was holy? Because I was homo? By 13, I knew how the story went. I'd learn the theater of church and the gamble of faith. I'd learn to take the host between my teeth, to let it sit on my tongue and let it melt there. I'd learn to genuflect, to kneel, and to pray for a reason to kneel. And I'd learn once already the hard blessing of a priest's hand on my legs, the heat of false mercy and the fire of mean grace. That other priest had opened his arms in the confessional too, had held a finger to his mouth, then pointed that same finger in catechism, joking with the boys about my swishing hips, my flapping hands, my stammering lips. A secret, I understood, was a cross. Sooner or later, you were nailed to it, and the only way free was down. So when the priest sunk into the chair and parted his legs, at first I rose. My back arched and my shoulders widened while I lowered my mouth down to his waist, shut my lips tight, and summoned my own kind of magic. He jerked his hips and grabbed my ears as I sank lower and lower, my face buried in his skin. Then a light burst in my eyes and I rose up again. My arms spread to the walls, wide as wings. My head scraped the vault, high as a hawk. My mouth split open, and I finally answered him with a loud and sharp tongue. One may keep a secret, I said, but not two. He opened his jaw, flashed his teeth, and sank back on his legs as if to leap up. But my mouth split open again, and this time I said, No need to tell everyone No need to tell anyone what everyone already knows suddenly, the priest geckered and gasped before his nose shriveled into his face, and his fingers drew into his hands, and his arms and legs grew smaller and smaller in the confessional, small enough that his whole body fit on the kneeling rail. From there, he bowed his head and offered to sell his lush fur for a pardon, his lavish tail for a prayer. Then he reversed himself and denied all sin, calling out accusations and excuses in a low growl, his tongue a flame of it was the true beast it was the false lamb he said it was not him he faulted his red pelt his sharp teeth his curled fingers he faulted his long pointed nose and the odd perfume of boys he faulted his tongue and the maker of his tongue until his voice hoarsened into a howl empty of all words just a choking sound and a dimming echo in the end The priest disappeared in a foam of yeast and wheat, a desecrated host. Through the lattice of the door a terrific peal of thunder rang over the pews into the organ of the choir room. The pipes bellowed the chords to a hymn sung for the fraction of the Eucharist. I ran first toward the sound and the light raining through the stained glass windows then out of the church and into the empty parking lot before saliva shot across my teeth and I spat a medallion shiny and round in a crack of pavement. In that spot A lily shot up, a stargazer with gold filaments, a bright orange stigma, and a crown of purple petals. At last, the church bells marked the hour, and I headed home with a fire in my chest, a new story in my head, and a wild chorus of laughter rising in my wake. This girl needs another drink. (laughs) See, first the water, because that don't taste so good. (laughs) (laughs) Then the whiskey. So this is the title of the story. It's a little bit of a misdirect because uh, Black Sheep Boy is not who you think he is. Um... Let's see if I can do this. All right. Like a morgue, no matter the blistering pavement or the bulb red temperature outside, the classroom remained a cold chamber. Windows frosted inside with tiny stalagmites of ice rising around the edges. Books stiffened like frozen meat and made slapping sounds when the covers shut and chairs all stuck in place, screwed down by the alabaster man in front of the room. Morphodites and Bedlamites! our junior year English teacher shouted over the heads of the class while a cloud of white smoke billowed out of his mouth. Mr. Hedgehog, as we called him, was a prickly, short limbed monster who wore a frock coat no matter the weather and wielded a baton like the conductor of a manic orchestra. He brought the baton down on our essays as if they were hideous scores of sheet music. He beat on the covers of books as if they were hide-bound drums. More than once, he beat on the back of a pupil's hand. Then, lightning quick, he'd snap out the words, just a love tap. <laughs> His tongue practically hissed against his mouth, against his teeth. Before we were born, he often told us, before we were dirty thoughts in our dirty parents' minds, our city had been the site of famous riots with fire hoses and street bombs and bloodhounds. At the start of one long, hot summer, the blacks just rose up, he said, and the South fell down he taught english but rewrote history with every book we read his baton slapped my desk and sometimes slapped my hand too when i corrected a fact or a date about the riots he had the year right but the city and the state were wrong and there was something else wrong too he spoke the word black as if it was the sound you made at the first bite of a wretched meal during exams, he paced the aisles with his baton, bringing it down on the head of the student who reached for an eraser or a bottle of whiteout. He saw any answer but the first as evidence of cheating, and any stray ink on the page as evidence of guessing more vile than cheating. He saw closed eyes as the work of moles and crossed out words as the mark of worms. He saw errors in us all and even foresaw our end, as he put it, scratching out the days like birds on a shrinking shore. What exactly he meant, we couldn't figure out except that it sounded like the last line of a novel. Maybe one he wrote? Like a lot of our teachers, he hated teaching. (laughs) He hated especially teaching his subject and dropped reminders of his once promising writing career before the great sacrifice he made for us all. (laughs) He trusted no book and told us how every author got it all wrong except one. Dizzy with opium and teenage girls with salty air and sailors with jazz and martinis with gunpowder and arms Every American writer wrote a pack of lies, he said, except the one who came on like a liar. With a fake name and a full costume of a fake southern gentleman, when we read the only great American novel, our teacher fondled the ribbon tie he wore and at each dramatic plot twist brought one of the tips into his mouth for punctuation. (laughs) can't depend on nobody but your slave, he told us when we reached the sidewinder ending. That, mes enfants, is the moral. When I raised my hand with a correction, he delivered a sharp love tap to my knuckles at the baton and said, not this time, smarty pants. <laughs> this time, you let it stand or dance those prissy feet right back to the counselor's office. <laughs> No one else said a word, frozen in their seats, frozen in time, so I let my hand fall. In the next row, another student sat stiff but angled his head around, looked me dead in the eye. Boogie. The sole senior in our class almost never looked up from his desk and never raised a hand. Yet on the field, his wide hands tore through the air to catch pass after pass and run play after play. Best offensive player in Acadiana, the papers said. Best running back in Louisiana. He had another title on campus, too. Best all-around Black. Black and white students sat in the same class but on different student councils and for different award ceremonies long after that long hot summer and long, long after Reconstruction. To most, that was just a fact, no question. So when Boogie wouldn't pose with his best all-around black trophy, the other students talked it up to vanity. Too big a star for us already, Boogie, they tease, but our teacher put it another way. Maybe he's holding out for valedictorian, Mr. Hedgehog said. Now that'd be a plot twist. Then he clapped the air in applause. Bookie was barely passing English, barely passing all his classes, even though rumor had it, his college test scores set a campus record. Teachers constantly found him dozing in his seat when he showed or drawing odd shapes instead of writing answers for fill-in-the-blank exams. For multiple choice or true false, Boogie placed an X in every box, and for essays he wrote with backward letters and a cursive hand that caused our English teacher to wrinkle his nose. Give a jock a pen, mister Hedgehog said, and he uses it like a ripsaw. When he taught civics, His other subject, Uh, Mr. Hedgehog called us miscreants and reprobates and pronounced civilization like it was a congenitally contracted disease. Close contact with Mr. Hedgehog, we were sure, would be worse than any STD. He'd leave you bloody with quills. (laughs) We were riding across the Atchafalaya Basin, Boogie and Me, Down one of the longest bridges in the world, 18 miles of concrete rising over muddy swamp. The water below looked nearly black, but it was covered in patches with a green overgrowth that looked like the hide of some prehistoric creature. Through the patches, tall gray trees rose up, bald and spiny. They look like old debutantes, those trees, with their branches spread out for a waltz and their trunks arranged in billowing rows of pleats. The whole picture was frozen in time, except for the quivering nose of the car and the quick tongue of the running back next to me. For that moment... I had no idea where we were headed and little idea where we'd been. As if the swamp itself gave us permission, we lifted right out of the car, right out of high school and the roles we played, the football star and the quiz kid, the stag and the fag. Nearly dizzy from the night heat, I struggled to remember how Boogie ended up in my car anyway. Already painted a Jenny woman at school, I'd openly set my sights on studying the cheerleader stunts. During the game, I couldn't tell a route from a sweep, but I knew every step of an arabesque. (laughs) All season, I followed our football team to away games, this time to a school in Assumption Parish in a town called Confederate, (laughs) I secretly hoped to join the cheerleaders to sit on the bus next to the players and their broad backs and wide grins in the locker room I might have been taunted for the direction of my eye But in the bleachers, I could stare openly at the boys in padded shoulders and tight lace-up pants. And when they lifted each other off the ground or delivered slaps to backs and rear ends, I could throw my hands together with the cheerleaders and yell each player's name out loud. (laughs) After the game in Confederate... I'd sat at a red light yards away and yards behind the school bus while tumbles and twirls ran through my head and a circle of players huddled before my eyes. Without warning, the passenger door opened and Boogie sat beside me. He said not a word. He just looked straight ahead until the light turned green. On the long drive back, he pumped me with questions and to each one I lied. Yes, I drank every lewd shot he could name. Yes, I smoked this, snorted that. Yes, I yanked it in the lockers and the bleachers. Yes, I nailed a girl, nailed her good, nailed her again and again. Yes, I hadn't done any of it. (laughs) But I knew the signs of a test, and I knew how to score an A. Suddenly, Boogie looked me in the eye and asked, Ever stick it in a guy? I stammered and pretended to look at traffic, not ready to switch on the truth. A guy ever stick it in you? My eyes stared at the school bus ahead and my tongue thickened. Ain't any different, he said. A hole is a hole. The words hit the windshield and burst like fruit. No one had ever talked to me like Boogie, like I was another player on the field. His talk made my ears burn and my head throb, but his voice wasn't the only one I heard. All around I heard the furious sound of pent-up laughter. The last laugh slipped out of the cracked windows of the school bus ahead, crammed with the rest of the football team, the pep squad and the cheerleaders. The cheerleaders beat time with their gloved hands and the pep squad opened their mouths in unison. They looked like they were cheering Boogie and me from the back of the bus but I knew they weren't already the rumors were starting already the talk was hitting the air like splinters of glass clear and piercing what was Boogie doing with that fag I opened my mouth and laughed a tinny nervous laugh Boogie laughed along his eyes shining like copper pennies in a fire did either of us know what the hell we were doing together to avoid any more of his questions I started asking Boogie some of my own Why didn't he talk in class? I'd seen him write down an answer, the right answer, when Mr. Hedgehog called a question, but Boogie never spoke it out loud. Why? Don't play by the rules, he said, when the game is rigged. But what about your grade, I asked. Got that in the bag. How? How? For a moment, Boogie fell silent, his face set in concentration. Whether from the stadium bleachers or the seat next to him, his sturdy body looked built for the game, built for running, catching, and tackling men on the field. Yet up close, his face looked delicate, like a guy about to play a carnet, with a shadow around his eyes and a worry on his lips. Did he have the breath ready? The notes right? Oh, I'll pass, he said, almost in a whisper. Want to see my study guide? I gripped the steering wheel and nodded yes. What would he show me? (laughs) (laughs) The bar was named after one of its lewd shots between the sheets. Only everybody called it sheets. Don't skid the sheets, I heard one guy say to a burst of laughter before a cloud of silence moved overhead. Once Boogie passed through the door, a hand went up in my direction, palm forward. Then a string of eyes lit up, feet spread, and nostrils flared. No one said a word, but I heard them clearly. What is it you want? Drinks rattled in glasses, and a funk song throttled the floor. What is it you want, white boy? Suddenly, I wasn't just the fag. I wasn't just the queer quiz kid. Here, I was white before all. Even with the red flashes of Sabine skin, even with the wild Cajun bush of hair, I wasn't black. At Sheets, there were only two options no choice, the same as Boogie's Award at school. Other people may have argued about prairie Cajuns and swamp Cajuns. Other people may have argued about pure French and Sabine French, Creole and Mulatto, Quadroon and Otroon. Here, there was no argument. Everything was clear as black and white, and I was the pink-eyed possum in the room. (laughs) In the static of the moment, a hand on my shoulder jolted me into a chest-exploding gasp when Boogie shouted, Boo! into my ear, and I jumped, the rest of the crowd laughed and turned back to point and pounce at the bar for more shots. Slippery nipple! Screaming orgasm! cocksucking cowboy, they hollered, and the names echoed in my head. Down at the end of the bar, Boogie introduced me as little bro and told everyone I was there to help with his studies. The guys in Jersey scoffed but looked at me as if a quiz kid might have some use after all. First time at sheets. First time as little bro, I thought, what was next? Most of the guys towered over me and their hair rose even higher in geometric shapes. Flat tops, blunt sides, sharp tips, sometimes with angular lines cut through the hair and to the scalp. Or else, their hair fell in a sheen of loose curls. The cloud of pomade filled my nose like musk. And I would have played little bro to any. Player, any guy in the room. None of them laid a hand on me, though. None grabbed my shoulder. Instead, they barked at the girls in shiny spandex and chunky gold necklaces and grabbed at the air left in their path. Just past the bar, the dance floor filled with couples jerking hips to songs about freakazoids, robots, and neutron bombs falling from the sky. The whole place shook when a growling singer commanded them to tear the roof off the sucker, and hands testified when a voice shouted about a black first lady. But the dance floor really turned to riot with a song about an atomic dog. All at once, everyone shouted dog catcher and bared teeth at the mirror ball as if it was the moon. The glistening bodies and surging beats drove the heat way up until bottles exploded and the guys in jerseys rained 40 ounces of beer over Boogie's head and I suddenly remembered they won our team won and Boogie's name would splash all over the papers again. With fiery eyes he schooled everybody on his moves and boasted going pro faster than any rookie in history history. His voice roared in a way it never did in class, and his hands looked wider than ever as they arced the air. Right then, I wanted to be the hips jerking next to him, the knees dropping to the floor, and the feet twisting into the ground. I wanted to be his freakazoid little bro. (laughs) Instead, I was the hands of the wheel leaving the bar, taking directions from Boogie as the car winded through a neighborhood nearly as crooked as the bayou next to it. Lights from another the car blazed in the rearview mirror, then vanished before blazing again. Houses leaned in and out of view, most with a steep pitch roof and a long galley porch. Then Boogie pointed his finger at the only Victorian house I'd seen in Lafayette with millwork like tattered lace and a small domed doorway. On the steps, he grinned at me, and I grinned back. What would he show me now? At Boogie's first knock, a voice shouted, Entree! And he pushed the door open with one hand. The night was hot and damp, but the house was cold and dry, with vents blowing through the floor. A single light clicked at the end of the hall. Boogie walked straight ahead with short steps, but I held back and eyed the street. When I heard the hum of a car engine, I slipped inside the house, feeling for the wall and blinking at the dark until my hands tipped over a coat rack. As I set it back, I could barely see the outline of a frock coat, I froze. Now I knew Boogie's study guide. It wasn't any spandex girl at sheets, and it wasn't ever to be me. Down the hall, Boogie's hand flagged me toward an open door, his face beamed like a fugitive with a free boat and a way out. On the bed, a man's bare ass rose in the air while a white silk nightshirt pulled around his face, Could he see me, I worried. Could he see anything? A chill had me rubbing my arms until Boogie laid his hand on my shoulder. You first, he said. My hands dug deep into my pockets and I shrank into my shoes and shook my head. So Boogie dropped his pants and jumped right onto the bed and right into Mr. Hedgehog, thrusting his (laughs) his haunches back and forth with his teeth bared and his head aimed at the ceiling. Outside, the moon shone like a disk of ice, white and cool and quiet. Yet inside, a grunting sound came from the bed, and it wasn't boogie. The sheets were twisting, and a set of hands were shaking, and Mr. Hedgehog started to scream. A shrill sound tore out of his throat and rang overhead. In the window, a face eclipsed the moon. First one. Then half a dozen guys in jerseys stared straight at the bed, straight at Boogie riding Mr. Hedgehog. They'd tailed us here, the football players. And now they crowded the window with flared eyes. Boogie didn't stop, though. He didn't see them, so he kept thrusting into our teacher while his teammates kept moving their mouths until a loud word rose up, then two, Dog! Gay dog! At that, Boogie's head whipped down and caught sight of the players in the window. Suddenly, he was the dead-eyed guy in class again, wordless and blank. He slipped out of Mr. Hedgehog, slipped off the sheets and onto the floor. Then Mr. Hedgehog fell to, clawing at the air and gnashing his teeth. He tore a chunk off Boogie's shoulder and anointed his own skin with the blood. Then he curled into a ball and started moaning about headlines and reputation and a wrecked career. <laughs> Boogie's eyes flickered back to life, and he bolted down the hall, out the back door, and hit the ground running. The players howled into the air, shaking the houses awake. Then revved the car and left a hot streak on the road. I, I should have busted through the window and emptied my chest to the night. I should have torn the roof off the house and chased the players with a mad fury. I should have run after Boogie and hollered his name to the moon. But I dropped to the floor and tucked tail, lower than any dog and stiffer than any possum. When, cho- when the cop showed, though, I found my feet and a story. However wrong are full of lies. I told them mister Hedgehog had lured me to his place with a promise of an A and a shot at a trophy. I told them he had pounced on me in his nightshirt and had shoved my face to the pillow. I told him he had a seizure in bed and had fallen to the floor. The teacher stayed silent as a corpse in a morgue. What could he say? That the promise went to a black boy? No, he kept his lips thin shut while I told the cops my sidewinder of a story, and Boogie ran free with his long legs and his strong back, leaving not a trace on the ground or a scent in the air. Behind closed eyes, I followed his moves. He ran all the way down the street to the end of the bayou and right out of the city, right out of this state, right out of history, as far away as his feet could take him. Come winter, he wore a second hide, wrapped himself in a cloak of wool and slept under the northern lights." No one's dog. He studied the sky and redrew the constellations. No shepherd to heed, no flock to fold. He cut a crisscross path in the snow like a guide for the outlaw and the wayward, the outcast and the misfit. When I finally reached him, he shaded me in the sun, warmed me in the moon, Under his cloak we lay together and no one could tell the black sheep from the white or the field of stars from the dome of night. water tastes nasty (laughs) okay so what next oh questions I guess are there questions (laughs) I have a question I'm so fucking hot I want to take off this blazer (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, questions questions Oh, Lord. Wick? I'm going to Akbar afterwards. That's a question I can answer. Where are you going? I hope you go to Akbar. What? What's the question? Oh, sweet Jesus. Can I take it off? It is fucking hot. Okay, thank you. Good Lord. I ain't that respectable. And uh, I am Cajun. We sweat like Bayou beasts. So uh, thank you very much, David. Um, are there any questions? Yes? this one Oh, I would expect a fucking fantastic question from Mr. Zach Fromps and Master of Shades and Shadows. What did it teach me? God, it taught me everything. Uh, I, um, it taught me, I don't know a damn thing about storytelling, for one thing, right? Uh, it taught me to submit to the story. There were so many times, and I wanted it to turn out a different way, and it wouldn't work out. Uh, It taught me. um, uh, It taught me. uh, it taught me to let go of reality because too many times reality, realism was not the answer to any one of these stories. So I had let go of, of a lot of the training that I had before on how to write, right? So it taught me how to unknow the known, right? How to, how to let go what it was that I thought that I knew so that I could walk into something uh, with more mystery and more myth. Um, that answer? The question yeah I hope yeah good question thank you yeah uh, how easy or difficult was writing this the process compared to all the other things you've written? oh what do you think uh <laughs> compared to the other things I wrote Everything else you've written, yeah, in comparison. oh well it took 13 years so uh that's that's one answer uh and every time I thought I had the story right, I'd turned out I was wrong, you know? And when I assembled them together to make a novel, again, I had to rewrite them all over again. Uh, so a lot of it is about, you know, uh, letting letting go, killing your darlings, right? Killing the things that you had fought so hard to plant because they weren't the right flower, you know? Uh, so you had to chop the head off. I mean, it's merciless uh, sometimes. So it was hard, yeah, yeah. But I will also say this. Uh, it, it may not come across in these two stories, but uh, a lot of the stories ended up being uh, kind of strangely funny. And so although they were tough to write, I love when they ended up sort of shocking me into laughter, because uh, I didn't know what was going to happen or what some queen was going to say in a story, right? Uh, and I that was... Uh, so it was tough, but that was the fun of it. Yeah. 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 So, what was your writing routine writing this entire novel? Oh, routine? I don't have a routine. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know there are writers that have really good answers to this question, right? But I don't. I don't. I don't. Uh, I, I think one thing was I had written a novel that was realist, and I didn't want to do that again. Uh, I had written a novel I had been trained to write, and then I wrote a book of poetry uh, and uh, I wanted this to work first as individual stories so i I wrote them erratically uh, and in wild burst over the years when I could get time away you know from teaching and they look radically different some of them than they did initially uh, so there was never a routine. Um, um all I can say is that uh um <sighs> If there was anything at all that I would go to with regularity, it was music, uh, so it was post punk it was it was house music, it was dissonant rock, it was weird, odd Cajun uh, 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 songs of the nineteenth century lots of uh, lots of defiant sort of troubled uh, odd music and that 's what I would listen to sort of endlessly to get every other word and thought out of my head uh, so that's the only thing uh, uh, no no routine no routine uh, drink a lot <laughs> but not while writing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to ask you a weird maybe slightly esoteric question but um, your writing seems so like exuberant and joyful how is it connected? oh love for the world to put it into your writing? Oh, thank you, because I'm quite angry about the world. Uh, But, you know, I I think if you can add liquor, then anger plus liquor is defiance, which is a kind of exuberance and joy, right? Because it means, yeah, you can change some shit, right? So get to work, right? Uh, So there was a question there, which was, how do you connect to kind of you know, love or, or compassion? Or whatever you want? Oh, God. Okay, so I like study so many icons, right? And um, a lot of books that I have read are books about writing, about, about how a writer becomes a writer. Uh, but this is a book that's very much about reading. So uh, I think it came across a little bit in Black Sheep Boy, but it's it's there in a lot of the other stories, like uh, Two Headed Boy and some of the other tales, where a lot of what I do is what I did with that one poem, where I take something that Rimbaud and Verlaine did, and I kind of Reiterate, um, and and it, that gives me joy, right? That gives me exuberance. That that kind of license and permit uh, to be as wild and lawless as possible makes me extremely happy. So, uh, so there, yeah. Uh, thank you for that question. Yeah. I don't really know how to phrase this, so accept uh, my apology if I get it totally wrong. No. But in, Writing about it, being an outsider among outsiders. Uh then it has to be guessed that most of us in this room are Cajun and then most of your audience people is Cajun. Yeah. I think I don't know, almost kind of like an exhibitionism maybe, uh, letting those of us who aren't Cajun have to occupy normative positions in, in relationship to Acadians into that that World. Okay, so like there was a great Cajun diaspora, there also was a great queer, and is still a great queer diaspora, of course, and both often end in the same place as the uh, punchline of a joke, right? Uh, of some kind or another. And I love that you didn't say a uh, comic, right? Exuberant joy is great. Uh, uh, so uh, the only um, sort of resolution I can find through any of those, either of those dilemmas is through uh Pushing against the obvious and the easy and the simple ways in which people want to... make a, a norm out of something that is a queer. And that includes Cajun, because then it's a commodity, then you can buy it, right? It's, it's simple, you can understand it, you can codify it, you can then legislate it. Um, and so just as I resist all that with, with queer politics, I also have resisted it with Cajun uh, 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 queerness. <laughs> uh, uh, and it makes me, uh, tremendously uh sad to see a culture atrophying into almost nothing because the language is virtually gone. My grandparents spoke Cajun French, which is not Parisian French, people. It's not pretty. It's not. It's guttural. It's chesty. It's nasal. It's ugly. Uh, it's wonderful. Uh, and it's a patois. It's made up of of so much. I mean, first of all, the Mi'kmaq Indians, with, who, they, who they married with when they were in what was Uh, is now Nova Scotia, but was then Lacadie, which was Acadia, Acadia, Acadiana, Cajuns, right? And then when they reached the bayous, they also uh, married with um, Haitians uh, and freed people of color before in the the southern part of Louisiana, before the Civil War, there were freed people who were allowed to buy their way into freedom. And they headed to the bayous also, right, naturally, right? Um, And so too did all the Spanish-speaking people, right? And so there's this this great, you know, uh, you know, uh, mishmash, this great gumbo uh, of people there. And until, until my grandparents, I mean, that, that all lived. And then suddenly, no. And that's why I feel so defiant, you know, on behalf of not just, you know, sexual or gender queers, or, you know, queer Cajuns, uh, but uh, of of people who are radical and other uh, of any kind, any misfit, any outcast, any outsider, because i want to I want to see that as a living language because you don 't have culture you don 't have stories if you don 't have language that 's living and it 's got to be a particular distinct language, not a universal one, right um, not a codified one, so yeah. Uh, Any other questions? Yeah. Um, Could you talk a little bit about your um, journey toward and away, perhaps, and toward and away, uh, toward publication with this? Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean in any simple way because I think it's complex but did your, did your relationship with publication change over the 13 years as you were writing these individual stories and then linking them uh, together uh, yes yes it changed greatly um, I hope you don't mind if I first say uh, I want to say congratulations <laughs> to all of CSUN And school's out for summer, Alice Cooper, but a special congratulations to, I'm told I'm allowed to say this, my gay godson, Dante from UCLA, right, (laughs) over there with some fabulous hoop earrings, I love them. Uh, uh, Yeah, it was tough, because, um, you know, first, yeah, yeah, yeah oh yeah, Uh, I I, I got beat silly in grad school, I was told I wrote this story once and it ended with something like, um, don't tell me fear doesn't smell, right and there was this huge debate in this grad class about how no, you can't say that, because that's not rational and I just thought, where the fuck are you people from, (laughs) I mean, I don't, what do you mean by rational, right, I mean where I come from is wholly irrational, and yes, fear smells, it smells awful (laughs) you know, so I I had to write how I was taught to write and when I first started publishing the stories, the, the 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 one that is the most radically altered was the first one so there was a story called First Kiss, what an awful name it's about a boy at a prom it's it's very realist it's very sort of homonormative even I would say right, he goes to prom and it's the dejection of, you know, oh he has his first kiss with the girl it's so sad uh, <laughs> Yeah. and it got published but it got published in a place that's rather realist right um and, and then there was a big break because suddenly that didn't work for me anymore I I'd written the poetry and the poetry was sort of wild and, and I liked that it was wild I liked that it wasn't a sad ballad anymore it was sort of a- angry and punk and something else and so I started writing these other stories and um um uh, They weren't finding publication. They weren't. I can't tell you how many rejections I got you know, uh, it was really tough. Uh, and even at my agency, I cycled through a few different people trying to find homes for them. It was—I'd say—that first story was published not long after the novel, First Kiss. It's now called Makeup, and it's a whole other beast. It is wicked. It is weird. Uh, JS jazz, jazz is in it, uh, and it's not just about the boy. So many of the stories are not just about the boy, right? This one's also about the girl who's also who's equally weird. Equally odd, uh, named Delta, um, and it's it's got a lot of fantasy in it. Um, uh, but from that story to the first one that was published after that, years passed. I mean, years. But I'm, I almost feel grateful for that because then I sort of wrote them in secret. And I sometimes think the best stories we can tell are those that we tell first in secret, right? Uh, so there was a long incubation. It was, really, uh, uh, it was really an incubation that allowed me to sort of figure out a way to how to tell them. And then finally they started bit by bit finding their way in. And then they got published but even after they were published um i'd often read them and just feel like oh i got it wrong you know i gotta change that uh and then when i put them in the book i rewrote uh, about eight of the 13 so even after they were published they still look different from how they were then you know because it didn't work for the book and you got to submit at some point. I <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> submit, right. Any other uh, questions?: Yeah. Uh, it's not as deep as their questions are. For, um, Your name is Sophia. How could it not be deep? <laughs> now everybody knows my name.: Yeah. Because <laughs> um, you share some poetry, and you see uh. someone either finds himself in poetry or a narrative. Hmm. And you seem to be doing both very well. Um, well, I think so. And, Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, did you start with poetry or narrative, and how did you, how were you, able to, like, make the transition from one to the other? Find yourself being a storyteller and, like, in- oh, I wrote poetry first because I wanted to be, you know, a singer in a rock and roll band. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, when, I, you know, at. I think my the first things I wrote were around eight and then all the way to thirteen I wrote nothing but poetry. But I always thought of myself as a kind of failed poet. Uh and I started realizing all my poems are really stories. So my first story I wrote at thirteen and then stories sort of took over. I always like to th- to think, Well, uh fiction is my husband and poetry is my my darling, right? Uh it's it's <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, I'm a little slutty, so, you know, I like to have sex on the side, you know. Uh, so, um, I love poetry. I don't think I'm a poet, but I love poetry, and I love to write it, because it teaches me something new about writing stories. It teaches me to listen to every sentence, right, to listen, because I think, I don't think voice is something you speak and something you say. I think voice is something you hear, and so I want to hear it, and I want to submit to that, whatever that voice voices and and poetry teaches that right uh, in, in a better way than anything else I know. So from time to time I you know eke out a poem. Yeah. Any other questions? Who's coming to Akbar? <laughs> okay, all right.